Bible reading today is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, starting in verse 17. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for in sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you like riddles? I know some of us do. They can be tricky, can't they? Often causing our minds to go one way while the answer is actually completely a complete different direction altogether. The secret, I think, is to maintain an open mind for as long as possible and not narrow down your conclusions too quickly while asking good questions. Drawing assumptions, guessing can mean you get tangled up in all sorts of possibilities, going around in circles before you finally ask the right question or perhaps return to consider a previous answer that you'd been certain was, a, was, was the right way, uh, discovering, ah, oh, I was supposed to go that way, and suddenly your eyes are opened and you see the solution. Does that sound familiar when you're dealing with riddles? Unless you're amazing at them and you can just see it straight away. <laughs> well, whether you like riddles or not, we have many circumstances in life that call us to make judgments or assessments of facts that are in front of us to work out where they point us. So, let me ask this question. How well do you think you judge things circumstances, or people? What do you use as your measure? How ready are you to hold your judgment until all of the pieces of the puzzle are in place? Until you have all of the information? Until you've asked all the relevant questions and have listened carefully to all the answers? I mean, when do you know whether you have all the information? I guess how then, even if you've formed a bit of a judgment, 
How willing are you to allow your judgment, once made, to be adjusted by future information? How capable are you at protecting your thinking enough so that any tentative or you know, early judgments you might make don't cloud your ability to keep actively listening to what's going on so that you can actually hear any future information without any bias? If you had to hazard a guess, what do you think your score might be out of 20 in terms of your judge meter <laughs> Are you perfect, 20 out of 20? Or do you get a bit lost in the weeds along the way? I think we we're, lots of differences. In fact, as a lawyer, I read lots of cases. That this gets talked about a lot in terms of the law. Bias. Oh, the judge is impartial. Well, we see in our passage in 1 Peter that God is an impartial judge. He's a 20 out of 20 kind of guy. He has no bias. He's not swayed by emotion. He doesn't grow tired of something and just make a call. He doesn't judge on form or status. He is rightly described as the perfect judge. Sorry, And with that impartiality, God judges each one's deeds accordingly, our passage says. Your deeds, my deeds. So whether you think your judgment skill is high or low, I think it's important as we come to God's word, in fact it's essential to ensure we're coming to God's word appropriately, that we're assessing God's word rightly. Open to hearing whether God has to, well, whatever God has to identify for us by the power of His Spirit, unhindered by our own preconceptions or biases. So, I think the best thing we can do there is to pray before we kick off. So, let's let's pray together. God, as the as the psalmist says in Psalm 139, would you search me, O God, and know my heart? Would you try me and know my thoughts? And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. God, may your word proclaimed today not return empty, but accomplish that which you purpose by it today in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. To your glory. Amen. Well, as Beck read for us today, our passage is from 1 Peter 1, verse 17, through to chapter 2, verse 1. And I'm going to work through our passage using three general themes. Perfect judgment, perfect price, and perfect affection. Now, I'm not going to strictly use them as section markers for my sermon. There are elements of these headings across the verses, and they don't fall perfectly in that order to, to make it structurally helpful. And of course, we also have to remember from last week, the verse 17 continues the therefore that we found in verse 13, which addresses everything that had been said in chapter 1. So there's actually a fair few verses there that we're kind of looking at in general. So I'm not going to use headings, but I hope that the headings, that these general themes will provide some helpful hooks along the way for us to understand the passage that's before us. So listen out for them as we go. 
to locate ourselves in our passage. You might remember from last time that Peter has been reminding his readers to prepare themselves as they journey through this life, preparing their minds particularly, because they were part of God's family, living in exiles in this time, but looking forward to a time that they would no longer be exiles. They would reach their final home with God. And so they should now be living in light of that future hope. Peter reminds them that they were part of God's family now because God himself, according to his great mercy, had caused them to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, as we've just sung. As a consequence of being part of God's family, as obedient children, we see in verse 14, they were, not, they were to not go on being conformed to the passions of their former ignorance, that is, when they had no knowledge of God, when they were blind to his goodness and grace, but rather they were to go and be holy in all their conduct, because the one who called them, God, is holy. That's the context of our passage today and continues to be the context as we read from our and at the start of our passage. And what looms large from here is the continued exciting picture of living as the family of God. That's us. We are the family of God. And it's all made possible because of God's perfect judgment in light of Christ's perfect price empowering us by the Spirit to have perfect affection for one another as his family. So, let's find out a bit more. Let's read from verse 17. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And if you look at your Bibles from verse 15, Peter has said to his Christian audience, You are God's children because he has called you to be. So, verse 17, if you have responded to that call and you call God Father, then, Peter says, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you and I'm telling you that if that is who you are, and it is, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, I think it's easy to stop and read a verse like this and shudder. Fear. Because if you are anything like me, and Scripture tells me that you are, because it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3, 23, so I'm in good company, then our deeds, our lives, and all of our choices and actions throughout our lives are not exactly going to get us very far with a perfect and holy God who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Or, as the psalmist says in Psalm 9, 7 to 8, the one who is the Lord, who sits enthroned forever, he has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Now, on our good days... We might be tempted to stretch our thinking to assess ourselves as at least pretty good. We might be tempted to think we can tip the scales enough 
that God will see us as basically okay. But the reality is God has been on the throne for a long time and will be on the throne for a long time. And just as Isaiah recognized back in the days of Israel's kings, that in God's sight, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Or, sometime later, hundreds of years later in fact, as Paul recognized in and around Peter's day, recorded in his letter to the Romans, himself citing likely from Psalms, where he says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The sad reality of human existence is that we were created to reflect God and his glory perfectly. But as the sad result of the sin of Adam, as a result of our federal head, to use some um, covenantal theology terminology, our federal head, as it were, breaking God's covenant and sinning by eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, we see in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. The tree that he and Eve were forbidden from eating. As a result of this rebellion, every human being from that point forward has been born into sin and is defenseless to do anything about it for his or her own self. It's the reality we find ourselves in. We are in need of a saviour because God's right judgment, his righteous judgment on mankind as a result of our inability to live perfect and holy lives for a perfect and holy God is death. The eternal and permanent removal from the goodness of God. What we know from scripture as the idea of hell. That is something rightly to fear if you don't have a saviour. So fear, in that sense, evokes somewhat of the right response. But, and it's a very important but in understanding this passage. This is not the situation Peter is describing in verse 17. It's true. It's real. That is the situation. But the fear that Peter is describing here is not the, ah, save me, kind of fear. Like the fear of the dark or the fear of being punished for doing the wrong thing. No, Peter is not describing that fear because Peter is talking to Christians. Remember Peter's letter is addressed to the elect exiles. We see that right at the very start of his letter. Verse 1. Those who are born again into a living hope. Verse 3. Those who have an imperishable inheritance ahead of them. Verse 5? Something? I didn't write that one down. In the middle there. The fear that Peter is describing here is reverent fear. I don't know if you've seen the movie Jurassic Park, but the, the first time the paleontologists, who usually dig up you know, bones of dinosaurs, the first time in the movie that they see the living Brachiosaurus, their response, I think, is kind of the fear response that Peter is getting at. The Brachiosaurus is not going to eat them. It, but, and it is incredible to see for them. 
There are no words that can be said except sort of a fumble with your glasses and a bit of a nervous laugh. But it is very big. And it is still something to be cautious of. It could still kill you. I think that's kind of a bit of a picture of the response, this reverential fear. Or perhaps if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, particularly the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, where the Pevensey children are first finding out about Aslan, the saviour character in C.S. Lewis's book. Lucy, the youngest of the, of the children, she asks, when, when they're talking about this, is, is he a man? And the response, by a beaver, which sounds weird if you haven't read the story, is this. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. C.S. Lewis's amazing capacity to be able to draw together analogies to help us understand Scripture is, has been a great blessing to the church. But I think this is the kind of response that Peter is getting at. The kind of fear that recognizes that God, who we have the privilege of calling Father as Christians, He is the uncreated creator of the universe. He is holy and set apart far above all creation and deserves our utmost respect and the worship of our lives. Because He is the one with perfect judgment and He should rightly turn us aside. Yet, as we've read in our passage, he has made it possible for us to call him Father. And so that's the fear that Peter is getting at. And I think we can see that this is reverent fear and not terror fear because of what Peter says next in verse 18. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, far from being a a warning, though appropriately still serving as one, we'll see later we ought to not rest on our salvation. It It does, in fact, require action. But far from simply being a stern warning, this is in effect a reminder. A reminder to continue to look to God, the Father who has perfect judgment. Peter is saying you are God's children. And you are God's children, not because of your great deeds, but because of the perfect price paid by God's own Son on our behalf. See, as we've already recognized Our lives, our deeds are not perfect. We are born into sin, inheriting lives that are separated from God. 
And this failure to live perfectly ought to result in our death. We've, we've established that from the passages earlier. But God has ransomed us. Now, a ransom was the price to pay to receive something, or often someone, back that had been sold into bondage or slavery. I mean, we think today of ransoms being paid when a person is kidnapped, and the kidnapper writes with magazine letters or a distorted voice over the phone saying, if you want to see your loved one again, then play $1 million into a Swiss bank account. But in Peter's time, the ransom wasn't the sort of a kidnapping situation. It was the price to pay to receive, retrieve something that had been lost, had been sold off, essentially, because of an inability or failure to be able to pay a lawful debt. Hugh reminded us this in his sermon in Ruth. That would ordinarily be done by paying money, silver or gold, precious metals of value. But even precious metals, they're not permanent. Peter's already noted in verse 7 that even gold, which is refined by fire, still perishes eventually. In comparison with the tested genuineness of our faith in verse 7, he's comparing that to our faith, which is permanent, as opposed to precious metals. Gold and silver is valuable. It costs money. But it is not permanent. And of course, a ransom with gold or silver isn't permanent either, is it? Even a person redeemed by their kinsman redeemer, out of slavery for an adequate price, that person can still fall back into slavery if they're again unable to pay their debts in the future. Just because they've been ransomed by silver or gold doesn't mean they won't again become slaves to someone. Thankfully, that's not kind of our situation today in terms of slavery, but it was, and that's the picture. But Peter says this ransom that you've been bought with is no temporary thing. You've been ransomed with something far more significant and permanent than silver or gold. Christ has paid the perfect price, his own blood. The ransom price paid to redeem you, Christian, from the futile ways of our sinful lives, lives and ways inherited from our forefathers since Adam, the ransom price, the precious blood of Christ, the Son of God, Given up like the perfect sacrifice, as we see in our passage, to atone for sin without blemish or spot. This would have us thinking back to things like the Passover lamb in Exodus needing to be slaughtered, the blood on the, mantle, the, blood on the door frame so that the, the spirit of death would pass over and God would save, redeem, re- restore his people out from, his, from slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. And later, the sacrificial system set up in Leviticus that we've gone through in some detail as the foreshadowing both from the Old Testament of this great truth that Christ would come as the perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the perfect price to ransom his people. And that is precisely what he came for as the baby in the manger from Luke we saw last week. Jesus himself said during his earthly ministry, the Son of Man came, did not come sorry, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Peter tells us that this was always God's plan to save his people from his righteous judgment. Let's read on from verse 20. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Grasp this, friends. Peter is saying, because you call on God as Father, the one with perfect judgment, who judges our deeds. Remember that when he judges, he sees the perfect price paid by Jesus and attributes our deeds to him. And in turn, attributes or imputes, you'll have heard that word, imputes Christ's perfect life, his deeds to us as though they're ours, but they're his. He sees Christ in our place. And that is how we are justified in this life. Praise God. As Paul points out in his second letter to the Corinthians, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And what is incredible is that at the same time as God choosing and planning before the foundation of the world to provide himself a saviour for his people, as saviour for his people, to redeem them from their sin, Paul states in Ephesians 1 verse 4 that he, God, chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, heirs of the kingdom through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Plan to send Jesus to save. Plan to save you, Christian, before the foundation of the world. This is why Peter says in verse 20 that our faith and our hope are in God as we've seen so clearly set out in the earlier verses of chapter 1, and is why since the Reformation, and no doubt for many years before that in the right places, the church has put together the five solas to remind ourselves that Christians are saved by grace alone, God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone, two separate ones. Found in Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. There is only one way to salvation, and God calls you to it. It is only through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect price paid on our behalf so that God's perfect judgment could be maintained, that we can live with him forever. It is by Jesus that we can have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven, as verse 5 tells us. But you must recognize your need for him to accept it. You must recognize that you're not able to be holy as God is holy. You are not able to live in perfect obedience to his laws and you require saving. If you recognize that and you repent of your life lived against God and accept Jesus as your savior and allow him to be the Lord of your life, then you can have the confidence that Peter is talking about in this passage. 
But until you recognize that, there is no amount of good deeds that you can do to balance out or do over or make up for our inability to live up to God's perfect standard. And until you accept Christ's salvation for yourself, you will remain under the judgment of God and are destined for an eternity apart from Him and His goodness. So if that is you, I call you to turn to Christ and accept His perfect price for yourself. Call on God as Father and be saved. Talk to me or one of our other church members today if you want to know more about what God's Word says about this. But it's, an, it's a necessary and earnest thing to think about. But I digress a little. Having confirmed the calling of Peter's readers, the apostle goes on to give them some practical guidance now for how this new life, this being born again into a living hope should play out. And verse 22 and 23 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Just like verse 14, Peter again draws the mind of believers back to their calling and election in Christ through their sanctification, their setting apart for God by the Spirit that was first described in verse 2. What Peter describes as their obedience to the truth is the same as what makes them children of obedience in verse 14. That is their response to God's call on their lives as his people. Salvation is, as we have seen, an act of faith. Obedience is stepping out in that faith, accepting the living and abiding truth of God's word. Which, as Brad read for us from the prophet Isaiah this morning, Peter then cites in verse 24 to say, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But, and praise God, the word of the Lord remains forever. And, Peter adds, this word is the good news that was preached to you. By God's grace, responding to God's word in faith, God's word being the good news of salvation, set out across the scriptures means that Christ's obedience is imputed to us and we are saved. The God's, uh, that God's word would save has always been recognized by the prophets. For example, Isaiah chapter 55, 11 says, and we prayed, we used this as part of our prayer this morning. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is powerful and God's word is adequate and God's word will save through the proclamation of his word. And just as we were born into death through our federal head of Adam under the old covenant of works, so now we are born again, no longer of perishable seed, but imperishable. Following our new birth in Christ, we receive a new federal head in Jesus, now living under the covenant of grace. And we're able to live under him towards eternal life, and no longer under Adam towards eternal death. Because of this act of obedience, stepping out in faith, accepting Christ's forgiveness. But it's not just a past obedience. With the knowledge of God's perfect judgment, in light of Christ's perfect price, we come to the active part of our passage. 
the Spirit-empowered task to love one another as the family of God. The perfect affection of the Christian community. God's saving work in our hearts results in a changed life. And this creates in us the capacity for a sincere brotherly love. Do you see that in our family? I hope you see it. I certainly see it among you, and for this I praise God. We are a small community of believers, but there is a strong family connection and a love for one another as we come together each week, as we serve each other, as we build one another up and support one another. But we have to acknowledge that it is not always easy. And from our own experience, we see that we, our brothers and sisters we journey with here or in other local churches, or even brothers and sisters of the family of God across time as we've read stories and and seen the lives of, of people gone past, none of us have or have had the capacity to actually live this out perfectly, except for Christ. But our passage says that's what we can do in Christ. So I think there are two main reasons why our experience of this is not easy. Why there is no perfect church. The first is because of our forgetfulness. And the second is because we continue to be impacted by sin while we await Christ's return. And we're affected more by sin when we're forgetful. So it's a bit of a negative cycle, unfortunately. Now, Peter's first readers might not have had quite the availability to all of the background in the Old Testament that we have the privilege of holding in our hands in our Bible today. And it is very likely that they were not Jewish readers either. So Peter had to set everything out in detail for them to understand. But in God's providence, I think... It's also because our sinful that, that is also because that sinful humans are forgetful that it was also important for Peter to address all that he has in his letter and for it to be recorded for us as the abiding word of God before getting to this instruction because if we just hear love one another we go that's that's impossible I cannot love you all earnestly perfectly all the time This background that sets this up has taken us now four sermons to preach through. It's a detailed detailed history. It's a detailed picture of who God is and what he's done for us. And Peter knows by the inspiration of the Spirit and the testimony of scriptures before him that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That plan was made. But he recognizes that Christ was made manifest. He was physically evidenced. He had a real life. He was seeable and knowable. He died a real death on our behalf. He was made manifest for our sake. We need to keep our eyes on Christ as revealed to us in the word. We only make our life live together harder when we forget to look to him. When we forget that first and foremost, it is he who has drawn us together. And it is for him that we gather together not as a group of individuals here to have our little collective quiet time with God, but as the body of Christ, 
deliberately gathered to witness to each other and to the world his saving work in our lives. We read earlier in our gathering from paragraph 5 of chapter 26 of the Baptist Confession of Faith about Christ calling believers to walk together in churches. I want to read just quickly chapter 6 as well, which recognizes that the members of these churches that we just talked about in paragraph 5 are saints by calling, visibly manifesting, just like Christ has manifested, visibly manifesting, showing, and evidencing in and by our professions, what we say about God, and walking, how we live in light of what we say about God, their obedience unto that call of Christ, our obedience to God's Christ's call. And these members, these Christians, do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinance of the ordinances of the gospel. The church has done this and the Bible calls us to do it. So if we have indeed purified our souls by obedience to Christ as we, as we have, as, as we've seen in this passage, we can have a sincere brotherly love or perhaps more collectively a sincere family affection one for another. So how does it happen? Well, there are lots of ways we see across Scripture. And we describe a number of them in our church covenant as, as, our, as we become members of Emmaus Road, as we willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ. But specifically in our passage, we see two things that we're reminded to do, to assist and, and to create this brotherly family affection. The first is a choice. The second is a change of behavior. The choice we see in verse 22 and comes from a proper understanding of our new birth in Christ, as we've explored. And as Peter said in verse 13, it's a choice that requires us to prepare our minds for action. It's something deliberate. We have to be sober-minded, as we saw also in verse 13. See, Peter doesn't just say, love one another, as though it was some idle activity something like putting up with one another, preparing ourselves to ignore one another's individual idiosyncrasies, peculiarities and quirks as we come together once a week to be fed and then get back to our lives. No, Peter says, love one another earnestly. This is the same word that was used for Jesus' prayer. Strive to love one another. Press into loving one another. Seek out ways to love one another. Love one another deeply. And don't give up loving one another. Perfect affection is the call. And again, while we acknowledge this is hard, it is possible to do as a family. Because we've been given a new heart. A pure heart. We have been born again into an imperishable that is direct love. And he loves his church. So we are together called to choose to love one another. This was Jesus' own command to his disciples while he was on earth. In John 13, 34, he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Christ died for his church. But Peter does not leave it there. After telling him, 
Five specific responses that believers might find themselves falling into as we come into community with one another as forgiven sinners who continue to fail. Attitudes we should be specifically working to put away from our lives because of our new birth in Christ. And they're found in chapter 2, verse 1. So, as a result of all of that, envy and all slander. Interesting collection. But these are specific community-destroying vices. These are ways of treating one another or responding to how each other might treat us that were part of our futile ways, part of our passions of our former ignorance that we've been from. Unpredictable. Our desires and passions, James tells us in 4, 1 to 2, wage war within us as things we hope for in this life are not met. Or our desires are interrupted by the lives of others. In our sin, as trials or difficulties come, and as our brothers and sisters are not all we might hope, they would be for us. As we fail each other, as we inevitably will, we might start looking at one another with a more critical eye, a more judgmental eye. In turn, we might start feeling less loved by them because of how we are viewing each other and consequently feel less inclined to love others ourselves. Before long, a loving community is no more than a collective of discontented individuals or perhaps, at best, disconnected factions. Not the picture Jesus commanded his disciples to show the world. Now, this is made up, but this might start as mildly as someone making a comment about it being a, being a bit distracted by noise during the gathering. A parent among the family might overhear the comment and make an assumption that the person was maliciously accusing them of not controlling their children, who might have been a little noisy that morning. That person later invites, so the person that said the comment later invites the parent and their family over for lunch after church. But because of the assumed slight, the parent deceptively says, oh, they've got other plans, so they can't make it. Of course they don't, they're just heading home. The parent says they hope the person has a nice lunch without them anyway, but it's nothing more than a veiled jab, hypocritical pretended care, while they turn their mind to what they're going to do to get their kids fed lunch still simmering about the comment. As the parent drives home and gives in to the kids' cries for Maccas, the parent begins to be envious about what they perceive to be the ease of that other person's life. They have no idea about how hard my life is. The parent ponders these things in their heart. And when they get together with another family later that week, they make sure to tell them slanderously about how that first person, how much they dislike children in the, in the gatherings. And so commences a somewhat heated discussion about how people just need to think more of others before they open their mouths. It's a made-up story. And it's only one of a number of scenarios that could arise in a church as differences of opinion arise around music, timing of prayer meetings, how to do lunch, whether to have an Easter service, colour of the chairs, where the TVs are. <laughs> There's lots of things we could say. The list is as variable as our imaginations. But what is happening here? 
Is this the kind of earnest loving that Peter is encouraging us towards? That God calls us to? No. Does it happen? Sadly, yes. Why? I think because we forget to look to Christ enough. And because we're sinful and we make mistakes. But this is exactly why these verses are in Scripture. These are simple responses born out of assumptions and a failure to clearly communicate with one another to ensure that we have proper understanding. But they can have devastating consequences to our community and then the proclamation of the gospel through it. And I fear that all too often the church, global, leaves these little thoughts and responses within our collection of available options to draw on. We don't weed them out. They are, of course, prevalent responses within our society, and they're often easily excused by well-meaning or just plain self-serving advice to look after yourself. They're okay. They're just the little things. That person deserved it or you know, whatever it might be. Look after yourself. But Peter is making clear that within the family of God, these responses have no place. They are therefore not required to look after yourself. And to the extent that they are employed to look after yourself, then there is bound to be an idol lurking within the situation somewhere, slowly sucking the life and joy out of the relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ as we sacrifice our relationships to that idol. You know, often I think one of the biggest things that cause Christians to fail to love one another earnestly, for humans to fail to love one each other earnestly, Christians in light of what Christ has done. Opening the door to responses like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy or slander is an expectation within the church that our brother and sister who has slighted us or has hurt our feelings, well, they should know better. We remember the sermon that said we were not supposed to do these things, but that that person, they just went and did it again. And so we hold them to a standard that God does not even hold us to, requiring them to pay for their own sin rather than continuing to love them despite their sin because of the perfect price that Christ has already paid. That sacrifice has been paid by Christ and neither you nor I nor anyone else is required to pay the ransom for our sin any longer. It is done. But it is so easy to fall back into this way of thinking. And it requires a regular, active choice and result, resulting change of behavior. So recognizing that this is our sinful bent. And as we continue to help each other grow in our sanctification in this area, as we continue to be patient with one another, build each other up and walk this journey together as we do this, putting these responses away from our community, there are... This time, three things I think we can do. Talk to each other. Say sorry and forgive one another. And pray for one another and with one another. If we're talking to one another, which the Bible clearly tells us to do, in Matthew 5 and 18, we see different direction conversations, directions by Christ That if we are hurt by a sister or brother, or we know we've hurt a sister or brother, we are to go to them and talk to them. 
Lovingly talking something through will help identify and clarify what is going on. And if we apply good, open judgment, reflecting our perfect, the perfect judgment example of our Father, if we can combat the desire to draw negative assumptions, then this loving approach to talk to one another will cover over a multitude of sins, which is something Peter says later in his letter in chapter 4. Now, if following a conversation, or just because we know that we have done something to hurt someone, one of the best things we can do whenever we make a mistake, whenever we say something we shouldn't have, or we recognize our actions, or our words have or may have hurt someone else, is to simply apologize, to say sorry, to admit you've done something to hurt your brother or sister, to acknowledge the hurt that it has caused them, to accept there may be consequences for you to address in your relationship as a result, to rebuild that relationship, to ask the person for forgiveness, and then to commit together to alter your behavior so that the issue does not continue to be a burr to your relationship. I have seen this play out in relationships in this church. And as I said earlier, I praise God for it. It is so encouraging to see growth in people's willingnesses. Willingnesses? Willingness to be open to saying, I'm sorry. Hannah and Rebecca and I had an opportunity to talk about this just this week, actually. I had a job to fix a door handle at Glenn's place. It was one of a few things that needed to be done this week, many of which were unexpected. I took the time out to collect the handle and I took it to a locksmith to have a new handle made to suit the key. The handle was made. I picked it up in the afternoon, put time aside to go and install it, but it didn't work. It was too late to go back to the locksmith that day. They were closed. The locksmith had thrown my old handle away, so I couldn't lock up Glenn's place. Thankfully, Glenn's an understanding Christian brother, and we devised a plan. I was going to need to take the handle back to the locksmith's the next day and then come back to the unit to put it on again. So the three of us went into the locksmith the following day and explained the situation. The guy behind the counter said, ah, took the handle away, quickly rectified the error in the cam of the lock barrel, handed it back to me. There you go, he said. Now, to be honest, it was not a huge issue. A bit of an extra time out from a couple of my days. But I also have to say, it was a little deflating to have been put to all that inconvenience at no fault of my own for something I paid for and to have no recognition given for the mistake made by the locksmith. The best we got was, well, the person who was doing it must have got distracted. No recognition of fault, no offer to compensate for time lost, no sorry for the inconvenience of having to come back, not even a sympathetic look. My sinful response to that, it wants to write a review on Google. It wants to advise people to double-check their locks before walking out of the shop. It wants to ensure that people know that these guys might not be trustworthy, maybe, maybe even hoping that it might mean they get a little less business to account for my inconvenience. I didn't do any of those things. Rather, thankfully, I took it as an opportunity for an object lesson with my daughters as we drove away. And now you, demonstrating how receiving a simple I'm sorry can go a long way 
to helping avoid us responding in ways we're not supposed to respond to in our situations. Because malice, deceit, envy, slander, hypocrisy, all of those are very easy. They're right there for us to respond. And if, we're, if we are conscious of that as a church and we recognize that we can apologize for things, it will make a big difference for us not crossing that line. Compare that with the one and a half hours I had to wait for some day surgery where they at least said, you know, apology for having to wait and let me know that the doctor had overbooked himself because he was going on long service leave and so he probably a bit overzealous in how many people he could see, recognizing at least in my mind that I was one of them, so at least I got the benefit of him fitting me in. But being told, it made that a bit more comfortable. Helped me at least overlook the issue. Interestingly, an academic in the dispute resolution space, which I work in, named Professor Chris Marshall from New Zealand, he said this, in the rough and tumble of everyday life, apologies function as a kind of social lubricant that prevents emotional overheating between people and facilitates ongoing cooperation. From my own experience in mediation and life, I think there is some sound wisdom in what he has to say. In fact, unsurprisingly, it's something that God calls us to. For example, in Proverbs 28:13, it says, "Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy." Apologies are so simple and yet can be so hard to do. Brothers and sisters, let's not let it become a hard thing to do. Practice genuine apologies. Seek to love one another earnestly so that you are conscious of what your actions and comments might cause or do in one another's lives. Demonstrate your love for one another by recognizing your fault. And when someone, else, when someone does apologize to you, be ready to forgive as God in Christ forgives you. And I know it will improve the relationships within our family. Now, I think it's worth saying, I've given a bit of a summary of what, might hap- what those things might look like. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander can also be more deliberate. They don't have to just be responses. We can do things deliberately out of these because of our, you know, we're tired, because our, our kids have been hard on the way to church, because it's been a big week. Many, many different things can cause us to want to respond or to, to act outwards in these ways, not just in response to passive events from misread assumptions. Malice could look like snide or sarcastic comments that are designed to cause people to change their behavior and also recognize that, you've hurt, that they've hurt you. To express our thoughts very quickly without, and perhaps with a barb, without taking the more loving, slow, patient process of discipleship. That could be an example of malice. Deceit could be relying on our overcommitment to life, choices that we've made, so that we don't have to do things together as a church without really thinking or trying to see what else we could sacrifice from our busy schedule in order to spend more time with our brothers and sisters to build our community. Some of those things are right things, but sometimes we can rely on things too much. That might be deceptive. Hypocrisy might be saying something glowing or even just bland niceness about someone when we don't actually think it, so that we don't need to engage in a hard conversation. Envy might be comparing ourselves to others in the church, unfairly holding others in contempt because they are in a different position in life to us. 
failing to recognize they probably have their own challenges we're not understanding. But as a result, neither sharing them with each other and neither being able to help one another. Slander, of course, could be talking things through with everyone else in the church except the person that we are in conflict with. As a result, diminishing that person's view within the community, but nothing being resolved. And there's lots of other examples that these things could look like. Let's put them to death. Put, put them aside. Do not have them as part of our former... Uh, they're part of our former ignorance, not some of our present living. And if we see it in our community, if we experience it, if we find ourselves doing it, stop. Talk about it. Get help from trusted brothers or sisters if necessary. Seek and offer forgiveness. But above all, create and take opportunities to be praying for one another and with each other. There are great opportunities in conflict as we come back together into a relationship to give that over to God, to praise Him, to thank Him for the fact that He has drawn us together, and to use that to spur us on to the love and good deeds that the Bible calls us to. Hand things over to God and love one another earnestly. And be encouraged by the truths we've seen in 1 Peter chapter 1, that Christ, the perfect sacrificial lamb, has died paying the perfect price so that you can live, so that you can be able to be appropriately judged by the impartial and perfect judgment of God and not be found wanting as he sees Christ. And allow that truth to infiltrate your life and indeed the life of our church through our interactions so that our family affection might be more and more described as the perfect affection that we see in our passage, because it will be evident as being one influenced and ultimately shaped by Christ's saving work in our lives. Something worth praying for, right? How about we pray together now? Heavenly Father, thank you that you call us to be your people. Thank you that we can call you Father. Thank you that you, by the work of your Son on the cross, have purified our hearts so that we can respond in truth, respond in obedience as we seek to live for you. God, we recognize that this is not easy. We recognize we are a fickle, fallen, and sinful people. And so we ask that you would help us as we go about this together. To your glory. Amen.